be with you this morning and preach from God's Word. So, growing up in a house with two brothers, glitter was not something that I knew much about or cared much for. It was a craft that we would use at school maybe once or twice a year. But now that I'm a dad of two girls and one little boy, glitter is something I know a lot about and care even less for. (laughs) Glitter sticks to everything, seemingly forever like uh, a plague. Uh, it's, it's funny because when Christian, my son, was maybe two weeks old, one of the girls spilt a little glitter on Christian by accident. But I think I have spent the last year and a half finding specks of glitter on that boy's head and just pulling them off to the best of my ability. But what I've also learned about glitter is that it goes everywhere. I mean, I find glitter all throughout my house. I find it in my shoes that are tucked away in my closet. How did it get there? I don't know. I find it outside on the ground. I find it on the countertops. It's almost like it's omnipresent. And because it's so sticky and it so easily spreads everywhere, I've got this rule. No glitter in the house. And everybody follows that rule except for faith, and except for charity, and except for Nancy. Okay, so I'm the only one that follows that rule. So what that means is I'm the odd man out on this thing. And it's really up to me to learn how to navigate that circumstance, navigate that situation in a world covered with glitter. And what helps me deal with this really minor inconvenience that I make a really big deal out of is that I know there's a finish line. There's a day when my girls will no longer be interested in glitter and I will have a clean house. Now, I didn't say I can't wait for my girls to grow up. Don't don't misunderstand me. Just knowing there's a finish line to this outbreak of glitter helps me endure it and helps me choose to embrace my daughters in those activities, even if it means being covered in glitter. This morning, we are going to kick off a series in 2 Thessalonians. And we are going to see Paul bring to light some key details of a finish line for Christians suffering a real outbreak, not an outbreak of glitter, but an outbreak of persecution. And that finish line is the Lord's second coming, which coincides with this future time called the day of the Lord. Now for the church at Thessalonica, which was less than a year old, Knowing these key details about their finish line, about the Lord's second coming, it was vital for their spiritual health. As they endured this fresh outbreak at the hands of their own citizens. Now a few things about this city of Thessalonica, which is in modern day Greece. It was a prominent city of prominent citizens. It was what you might call a worthy citizen of the Roman Empire. 
Here's some facets about it. It was strategically located along this major east-west highway that led directly to Rome. It had one of the country's best natural harbors, so it was very rich and prosperous. And it was a free city, which was unique in that day and age during the Roman Empire, meaning the citizens could elect their own leaders as long as those leaders remained loyal to Caesar. All this to say, this persecution that the church was forced to endure was coming from a very prominent, prosperous, and peaceful city. And they saw these Christians somewhat as a plague. They saw them as a threat because their claim that Jesus, not Caesar, was Lord and Savior could be seen as a seditious act and threaten their status as a free city. But that's not all the church was up against during this time of persecution. There was more that this church of less than a year old was forced to reckon with. And that's this, that they were misunderstanding the nature of their persecution due to this false letter supposedly from Paul saying that the day of the Lord or the tribulation had actually begun. And this wrong understanding greatly alarmed them. And here's why. They feared that with the Lord's second coming, that these blessings that he would come and gather his people and reign were somehow no longer truthful expectations. And so they feared their suffering had no real purpose, no real end. Now they hadn't lost hope yet, as we'll see. But Paul's writing this letter to them into these circumstances so that they don't lose hope, so that they don't lose faith. And so this is what we're going to look at today as he elaborates on some key features of the Lord's second coming and the day of the Lord. He's putting this in perspective. He's correcting their erroneous thinking. So the text this morning is just chapter 1. But I wanted to lay a little bit of an overview for you for the whole book. And in chapter 1, we're going to ask ourselves, how do we endure persecution with steadfastness and faith? Which this young church was doing and which we may at some point also be asked to do. So how do we do that? How do we endure persecution with steadfastness and faith? And the way we're going to do this is we're going to start out by looking at what God had already done for this church. What he had done, his past act. And then we're going to look at what he was presently doing in that church at that time, as well as presently in our church, the universal church. And then finally, we're going to look at the finish line, what the Lord will do. So what he had done, what he was doing, and what he will do. All as we understand how to endure persecution with steadfastness and faith. So read with me verses 1 and 2. We're going to take this in chunks as we see God's past work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So in these two verses, we're going to see foundational gospel blessings that God had secured for the church, comprising its identity. And he secured these blessings in the cross of Christ, and the church received them by grace through faith in the Lord. So verse 1, look at verse 1. This church is in God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Key word there is in, key place is God and the Lord. To be in the Father or in the Lord is a metaphor. It's explaining the intimate nature of the church's relationship with God and the Lord. In fact, this relationship is so comprehensive, it's so intimate, that he defines it as being in God, in the Lord. It's their identity. Who are you, church? You are in God. You are in the Lord. In fact, we know this uh, in present-day culture. Famous people understand this in their own lives, being identified not so much who they are individually, but being associated with something perhaps bigger than them. Think about Taylor Swift for a second. When you would see, or if you would see Taylor Swift uh, walking down the street, you wouldn't say, oh, Taylor Swift, that's Mr. and Mrs. Swift's daughter. That's not how she's identified. She's identified with her fame due to her music. So when you see Taylor Swift, her identity is wrapped up in something larger than just being the child of Mr. and Mrs. Swift. Her identity is wrapped up in being an all-world, all-talent musician. And so the church, similar to Taylor Swift, our identity is tied to the Father. And it's tied to the Son, His redeeming work on our behalf. We are more so Christians than anything else. I am more so Chad, the child of God, than I am pastor, dad, husband, son, friend. And that is true for each of us because we are in the Father and we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, looking at verse 2, we see Paul sum this up with these two words, grace and peace. One scholar put it this way, God's work through Christ, grace, invites people into a harmonious relationship with God. Peace, all by grace, all through faith in the Lord. So with these two short verses, Paul has laid the foundation that this persecuting church must know and grab hold of what God had already done for them. Who were they? They were secure in Christ. And no amount of persecution could change that one iota. So with that, how do we endure persecution with steadfastness and faith? We remember our identity is securely in Christ. Unshakable, immovable, unchangeable, no matter what. Let's look now at verses 3 through 5. 
And before we read these verses three through five and look at the present work in the church, I want you to know something that verses three through 10 in the Greek is one long run on sentence. So Paul is about to start just rapid fire dropping these treasure troves of theological truth on this young church. And it's still something we as a church are understanding and studying today. And so read with me verses three through five, where we see what God was doing in the midst of their suffering. He wasn't just watching idly by. He was at work presently in their persecution. Verses three through five. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So a couple observations as we talk about God's present work in the church. First off, verse 3 is actually an answered prayer by Paul that he prayed in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Listen to this prayer Paul prayed. His prayer is, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And then Paul says, The Lord has answered that prayer in the midst of your persecution. Verse 3, he says, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So what was God doing in the midst of their persecution? He was answering a prayer that they might love one another more and more despite the harshness of their surroundings. Why? Because God cares deeply that we as brothers and sisters in his family, love one another. That's one of Christ's final commands he gave the disciples before he went to the cross, was love one another as I have loved you. And we see them doing that. But that's not all that God was doing. He wasn't only answering prayers in the midst of this persecution. Read with me verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Okay, so what does that mean? And what does that have to do with God's present work in the church at this time and amongst us today? Well, we first need to understand what this in verse 5, this is evidence. This is evidence, but in what way? This refers most likely back to verse 4. Specifically, all your persecutions and in the inflictions that you are enduring. So their persecutions, their suffering, were somehow evidence of God's righteous judgment 
Well, what does that mean? That term, righteous judgment of God that we see in verse 5, that their sufferings and persecution was evidence of, this is a legal decision rightly made by God on behalf of the church. And in in the context of our passage this morning, this legal decision that God rightly made on behalf of the church was that He rightly declared all believers in His Son are right to enter into His kingdom. And the suffering and the persecution is evidence of their citizenship in a heavenly kingdom. They are pilgrims in this unbelieving world. On what basis are they worthy? On what basis is God right to say, you are worthy to enter into my kingdom? On the basis of the righteousness of His Son, whom they had trusted in for the forgiveness of their sins. So in the context of this setting, of this letter, Paul was saying, you believers who are being persecuted and are suffering at the hands of those who consider themselves to be worthy, you, in fact, are the worthy ones. You, citizens of my kingdom, will enter into that kingdom when my son returns. And this persecution and this suffering is evidence of that very fact. So God, through Paul, was putting into perspective the nature of their persecution. Persecution for the church, then and now, is not a foreign object It is evidence that you are citizens of a kingdom that is both now and not yet. And it's even testimony. It's testimony to us that we are on the right path. We are on the path of righteousness and it is leading directly to God's kingdom. One commentator wrote, the Christian paradigm is always the cross. The Christian paradigm is always the cross. Suffering precedes glory. We suffer for God before we enjoy glory with God. So we see that here. And what Paul was doing was he was encouraging them that you hadn't missed out on anything. This persecution is not the day of the Lord. You have not missed out on the Lord's second coming. You have not missed out on the blessing of being gathered to Him, united with Him forever and ever. This persecution in no way, shape, or form negates your citizenship in heaven. The promises prepared for you. So based on these verses, how do we endure persecution with steadfastness and with faith? We comfort one another with the knowledge that persecution is part and parcel with being a child of God in this unbelieving world system. That our citizenship is secure in heaven. So let's look at our final point this morning. God's future work, our great finish line, the Lord's second coming that coincides with this day of the Lord. Read with me verses 6 through 10. 
Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. So if you recall, I said that the Lord's second coming, the finish line, and this future day of the Lord... They coincide or they overlap in some manner, which we see at explicitly in verse 10. When he, the Lord, comes on that day. So the Lord is coming again on that day. The day is the day of the Lord when he will come to intervene in human history in a spectacular manner. And he will both pour forth his judgment on unbelievers, and he will reward believers for believing upon him. And this time is often identified with the tribulation. But what we don't know, what we debate, discuss, is the timing of all of this. The Lord's return with the tribulation, judgment with blessing. Some understand the overlap of the Lord's second coming with the day of the Lord in this way. The rapture happens first. The Lord comes for His church, raptures the dead and the alive in Christ up to be with Him, to receive the resurrected bodies, to be in heaven for a period, to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. And during that period for seven years, the Lord pours forth His wrath on the unbelieving world during this seven-year tribulation. At the conclusion of that seven years, the Lord, with the glorified saints, return to earth. He dispenses judgment once more and establishes His kingdom on earth where He reigns. Others understand the overlap of the Lord's second coming and the day of the Lord in this way. First comes the tribulation. And Paul, in chapter 2, next week, Ross will show you, there's some identifying markers for when the tribulation begins. So first comes the tribulation, where the Lord pours forth His wrath on unbelievers. His judgment begins, and the church is there, witnessing, enduring. Then comes the rapture, where the Lord comes and rescues His bride, all receive their resurrection bodies. And then with them, he returns to establish his kingdom and judge and rule. Paul doesn't tell us the order. We don't know the order. But what he makes very clear is some crucial information that the church in Thessalonica needed to understand and we today need to understand in order to be hopeful, faithful 
people. And in the context of this letter, so that they do not lose hope that real consequences are coming for those who persecuted them. That their persecution is not meaningless. It has an end and there are consequences. So let's look at some of those real and lasting consequences, both in a positive sense for the believer and a very tragic sense for the unbeliever. What I first want you to see regarding God's future work is He will act as a judge. Now Paul, in verses 6 through 8 here, in these three verses, he just splatters these judicious terms. In verse 6, we see God considers it just. So he's acting as a judge. He's ruling. In verse 8, we see as a just judge, he's inflicting vengeance. And in verse 9, we see they will suffer the punishment. So my point is, however your order is, just know that during this time, the Lord will be judging justly. I want to focus for just a minute on verse 6 because it really amplifies the character of our Lord as a judge. Verse 6, this term just is dikaios. Now that word describes God as being fair or righteous in his judgments. In fact, this word goes so far as saying that God is obligated to his just character to make just rulings. Stated differently, he's not capricious. He always does what's right. So if he's a just judge obligated by his own character, what can believers and unbelievers expect to receive from the Lord when he returns? The believer who is already righteous in Christ will be vindicated and rewarded. The unbeliever who chose to remain in their unrighteousness, separated from God, will be justly punished. In verses 6 through 7, we see this justice being worked out fairly in opposite directions. Reward for the believer and punishment for the unbeliever. Read with me verses 6 through 7 one more time. Since indeed God considers it, considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He will give each as they deserve. The wicked who afflicted will be afflicted. The righteous who suffered will receive relief. Paul does not keep it only in this abstract for us. These are some of the concrete details that we know. He moves to the lasting and to the real. We see that with the affliction of the unbelievers in, verses, in verse 9. Read with me verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Who is they? They is identified in verse 8. Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who do not know God are Gentiles, in this context, Greeks, who did not believe. And this word, not know, means they know nothing about God because they want to know nothing about God. They know nothing about God because they want to know nothing about God. They also, there is the unbelieving Jews, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. They rejected the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Their disobedience is unbelief. So they, unbelievers, will eternally suffer. They've rejected God's testimony of Himself in His Son. They've rejected God's message of salvation in His Son. And their punishment is a form of justice called talionic justice. We see this in the Old Testament with an eye for an eye. The punishment fits the crime. You afflicted my children, you will be afflicted. You rejected the eternal Lord, you wanted nothing to do with Him, so your punishment is to be separated from His presence and His glorious might forever and ever. That term eternal destruction in verse 9 it in no way teaches that at some point unbelievers will be annihilated or cease to exist. In fact, it teaches the exact opposite. Just as God lives forever in His glory, so those who have rejected Him will live forever apart from His presence and apart from His glory this is heavy, heavy stuff. Looking now at verse 10, he further amplifies what the believer, you and I who have trusted in Christ, what the believer will do on the day of the Lord's second coming. Read with me verse 10. When he, the Lord, comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at, among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To be glorified in His saints is people, that is believers, saints, the church, giving Him the glory and the honor that He deserves because of who He is and what He's done. And the text goes on to say that we will marvel at Him. That is, we will look upon Him as our Savior, as our King, as the just judge, and we will admire Him for who He is. So polar opposite from the unbeliever who wanted nothing to do with Him and will receive that as their punishment for all eternity. We 
who have trusted in him because of his grace, we will honor him. We will marvel him. We will worship him in his presence, in his glory forever and ever. So how do we endure persecution with steadfastness and with faith? We keep our eyes ahead on this marvelous finish line, trusting that he will met out perfect justice. But what about today? Here in Tyler, Texas. What if I'm not encountering persecution today? What would God have us to do based on this passage? Well, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't trusted in Christ, do that. Believe upon the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins so that his righteousness can be credited to your account, so that God can justly say, you are worthy of my kingdom, not based on your good works, but based on the good work of my son dying in your place. And if you are a believer, then Paul tells us exactly what we are to do at all times, today or in the midst of persecution in verses 11 through 12. Read with me. This conclusion to chapter 1, which is Paul's prayer report for the church, that which he was continuing to pray over the church. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase in verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, is God's ongoing sanctifying grace, making the church more and more like this blessed Savior and King and Judge that we just read about more like him in his character. And what Paul is praying for the church to do today is simply walk in step with the Savior so that he might be glorified in you and through you. And if persecution does happen to come your way, which it will in all shapes and sizes, remember that nothing changes your identity in Christ. Be comforted that persecution is actually God's grace saying, you're mine. You're on the path of righteousness headed straight for my kingdom. You're worthy because you're in Christ. And let's keep our eyes on that future day when the just king and judge returns. Would you pray with me? Father, we are worthy simply because your Son has made us worthy by grace through faith in Him. What awesome things you have revealed to us in your Word this morning. I do pray for us as a church that we would walk in step with your Son, that you would be glorified in and through us. I pray for the church around the world 
that is being persecuted. Lord, make this truth known to them that they are dearly beloved by you. That you are with them and working in their midst. Reassuring them that they belong to you. And that your son will return and judge and sort out all things in a just manner. Thank you that your spirit is the ultimate teacher who does make this known to your children. And who does impart this truth on our hearts. May we be a church that glorifies you, Lord. May we be a church who longs for the Lord's return. And who, until that day, focuses on glorifying you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.